one of the reasons that we come together every week is just to remind ourselves of what God has done. And, um, you know, there are various people facing different trials, uh, sicknesses, financial difficulties, and sometimes we're tempted to lose heart and uh, to, uh, to become discouraged. But, uh, you know, this song reminds us that uh, God never fails us. Uh, as we look back on our life, we can see the times when God's provided for us, and that's so important to remember what God has done. So let's, uh, we'll sing this song together. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so Father, we thank you that we can praise you and lift your name this morning. You bless our time together, encourage our hearts as we reflect on your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, just a couple of reminders. Uh, our summer, summer study continues on Wednesday night for the next two Wednesdays. Uh, and then the Wednesday after that, there will be a prayer night. So keep that in mind. Um, also, Ann wanted me to remind the kids that are involved in Generation Jesus that today, this week, is the week for Generation Jesus. So follow Ann and, uh, and her helpers upstairs. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Steve. I want to thank Alan and the praise team for uh, leading us this morning. Just warms my heart to sing of the goodness of God. And it's good to be back. I want to shout out to Don. Don has a birthday today, so I'm not supposed to say that, but I did. So, Don, happy birthday, Don. Don's over there, so you can wish him a happy birthday. I'll embarrass him. I get by with that at least once. And then wanna, we want to welcome uh, Bev's family, uh, Bev Shelton. Uh, Bev, we're just grateful for uh, you and your family. And so uh, welcome the Shelton family and joining us today. Uh, traveling from a long ways away, they all gathered together to, uh, to be with mom and uh, grandma and great-grandma. And so we're just uh, excited for, for them and thankful that they're here with us this morning. I'd like to ask that you would uh, join me in prayer if uh, you would. Let's pray. Father. Uh, we sing about your goodness, and yet I know that um, most of us, if we've lived life for very long, have experienced challenges and difficulties, and I thank you that you are good all the time, and that even though we don't understand, and we may not understand why uh, we face the challenges and difficulties and struggles we do, it doesn't change the reality of who you are and we pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, truths that will challenge us, truths that will change us, truths that will conform us to your image, and truths that will bring some into a relationship with you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's hard for me to admit, I guess, but as a little boy, uh, I used to suck my thumb as a source of self-soothing. 
You know, some of uh, little children, they have their, their, their favorite little stuffed animal or they have a, a blankie that they carry with them, you know, and some of them have that blankie and it's like, it's just a few pieces of thread by the time that they're old enough to, sh- to, to get rid of the, the blankie. But as we get older, our, our methods of self-comfort become a little more sophisticated, you know, comfort food. Uh, we look to food to provide us with comfort. Or sometimes it's, it's a pleasure that we're pursuing that we think will provide us with the source of, of comfort that we, that we want. Maybe it's uh, pleasure or just stuff. If I just have more stuff, then I'll, I'll feel more comforted when life is a little bit unsettling. But see, we trade what's more sophisticated, we, we pursue what's more sophisticated, but it doesn't provide more sufficiency. It really doesn't satisfy. It's just a little more sophisticated way of comforting ourselves. And as we've been looking at the, the book of 1 Samuel, what we found is that in the tumultuous stages of David's, the, the early tumultuous stages of David's, or Saul's demise, and and and. David's rise, that they established a relationship with each other. They had a relationship with each other. And it was the mutual love of Jonathan and David that was captured in the covenant, which Bob alerted us to last week in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. That's the the initiation of this covenant, mutual loving covenant relationship. That's what grounded them in the midst of this tumultuous period in Israel's history. And as we move on now into chapter 20, what we see is that 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 relationship covenant is reaffirmed. And that's expanded, and it expands our understanding of that agreement between Jonathan and David in terms of the comfort and the confidence that it provided them and provided, first of all, to Jonathan and David. This relationship, this love, this pledge that they had to each other, it provided them with confidence, provided them with comfort and encouragement. But it also looks forward and points forward to provide all who enjoy a friendship with David's greater son, Jesus, with comfort and confidence as we face tumultuous times and difficulties and hardships. If you have your Bibles or if you have your phone, you have it on your phone, or if you want to reach down under the seat in front of you and find a Bible and turn it to 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to look at these 42 verses. And in these 42 verses, there are four functions of covenant that provide comfort in the midst of chaos and confidence in the midst of confusion. And I'm uh, indebted, I guess, a a lot to to Ralph Davis and his his work on this in, in kind of alerting to and pointing out this covenant focus of this text. I'm going to read the text, not all of it, but I'm going to read most of it. I'm not going to do what Bob did, uh, but uh, bless his heart, uh, last week it was, it was a long, I'm going to read a lot of it. I'm going to read down through verse 34. So if you have your Bible uh, open, we're going to read it. First Samuel chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? And what is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. 
Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is uh, the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. And if he says, it is good, your servant shall be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to, de- put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Now what happens here, I just want to let you know this, I'm going to interrupt here, but in, 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 he, in Jonathan said in verse 11, to David, come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And if we stop there and picked up in verse 18, that's the answer to David's question. Okay? So verses 12 through 17 is kind of a parenthetical thought. It's, it's important to the text, but it kind of interrupts the, the flow. So verse 12, then Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, Shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? And if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies, or may the Lord take vengeance, I think the ESV says, on David's enemies. Verse 17, And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him and because he loved him as he loved his own life. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow's a new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone of Ezel. And I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad saying, go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come for this, there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But... If I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are, be- are beyond you. Go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. 
And it came about the next day, the second day on the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan's son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, Please let me go, since our, father, our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he put put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. I'm going to stop right there, but we're going to look at these four functions of the covenant that provide comfort in the midst of chaos and confidence in the face of confusion. And the first one is this, that that, that covenant fundamentally removes uh, any insecurity. There are several actions based upon the covenant relationship between David and Jonathan that that show us that uh, loyalty eradicates uh, this insecurity, that covenant loyalty kind of gets rid of this insecurity between them. First of all, we see the sincere reassurance in verses 1 through 3. Fearing for his life, uh, David wanted to know what he'd done. Now, uh, those of us who are joining us, uh, there's a lot of freight from chapters 18 and 19 that are here. Because Jonathan, uh, David had real good reason to fear for his life because uh, Saul had tried to kill him uh, and was sent Uh, people after him to try to kill him and then he went after him to try to kill him and the Spirit of God came upon all of them and they ended up prophesying as God protected him. Jonathan had previously received a a promise from his dad Saul that he wasn't going to kill David. Yet he still kept pursuing it. So David is freaked out. He's a little bit feeling pretty vulnerable. So in his desperate condition, David sought, who did he go to? Who could he go to? The one person who loved him as himself, Jonathan. And they had this covenant relationship established in chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. But Jonathan was like, I think you're overreacting, David. Uh, I mean, Dad already told me, this is chapter 19, verses 1 and verse 6, Dad already told me that he's not going to kill you, so just relax. But David's smarter than that. And David says, hey, wait a second, don't you get it? The connection you and I have is such that your dad is not going to tell you this stuff because if he tells you that he's going to off me, then you're going to be grieved and upset. Now, that's my paraphrase of of what's going on. And so he assured David, far from it, in verse 2, far from it, you shall not die. So David explained, you know, wait a second, David, there's this connection here and and, and it's going to happen. And he had good reason to to believe that it was going to happen. 
Now, uh, Marlon and I have been married for several years, and, and I rarely keep things from her, okay? Only stuff like at church, if I'm doing counseling and it's confidential, or if I, uh, we have a board meeting or an elder meeting or something and I can't tell her, I, you know, I, don't, I don't share that stuff with her. Uh, but uh, for the, the weeks and months actually preceding our vacation that I just got back from, uh, I kept something from her. Uh, because we were planning a surprise party for her birthday. And uh, her, she and her twin sister uh, had, a, had a big birthday. And so we, my, her, my brother-in-law and I were planning this surprise. So I kept it from her. I didn't want her to know. And, so, and I kept it from you all. Because everybody goes, well, where are you going on vacation? Where are you going? I'm not going to tell you. People got mad. <laughs> they will chill out. You know, it's, it's, it's private. <laughs> we went to Galena. Okay, now you know. Okay, the big spot, the, you know, big, wonderful Galena, Illinois, and, uh, and then to Dubuque. But I had to keep it from her. In other words, to, to make it a surprise, Saul was keeping his plans for David's demise a secret because he didn't want to grieve his son. He didn't want to set his son against him. So Jonathan's assurance of David was, was well-intentioned. It was just not very well-informed. He didn't, he didn't have all the information that he needed, didn't have all the information. So then we see not only is there this reassurance, but there's this selfless response. So he, Jonathan's like, okay, he acknowledges David's sincere fear that he's going to die. And he also accepts his own, the possibility that he might be ignorant of something that his dad is keeping secret. And so we see in verse 4, what I think are, are very, very powerful words. Verse 4, Jonathan says to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Whatever you say, I will do for you. Folks, Jonathan put his paternal preference, that is, preference for daddy, he put his own perspectives and priorities on hold. on the back burner, in submission to God's anointed king. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. And as I thought about that, Jonathan, you know, so just Jonathan's submission was born out of this intimate covenant relationship that he had with David. And in the same way, Every person who names the name of Jesus, every person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, their, our covenantal friendship with Jesus is foundational to our willingness to say to our Lord, whatever you ask of me, I will do it. Whatever you ask I will do. It's that covenant relationship with our Lord that is the foundation and the basis for which we are willing to do whatever God asks of us. I was so encouraged uh, as, as someone that I know shared with me that this past week they had a chance to, to share the gospel and even pray for, with a person to, to accept the Lord as their Savior. And I thought, yeah, okay, so then am I willing to do, am I willing to share? Are we willing to share with our neighbors, our friends, our family, the gospel of Christ? Are we willing to challenge them with the truth of the gospel? Are, are we willing in our covenant relationship with the Lord 
to pray for our enemies. Some of you remember Matt Deaver was here a couple of weeks ago and he challenged us to, from 1 Peter to patiently endure injustice. Ooh, I'm not so good at that. But that's whatever the Lord would ask us to do. Are we willing to speak the truth when the world is full of lies? This is the challenge that I think is there. Are we willing to give generously and serve faithfully? I, I wish that I'd have felt better. I would have been here Wednesday night, but I'm, uh, uh, you know, vacation is a great time. As I've told you, uh, a friend of mine who's a missionary says, vacation is a great time to get sick. And so I was sick on vacation. Um, uh, because, you know, you're not taken away from your energy that would be given to ministry, full-time ministry, if you're sick on vacation. You just, you know, take time to be sick. And so I had a cold that turned into a sinus infection, and, 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 and it's like some of you are faithfully serving the Lord with the Fourth of July celebration, welcoming people from the community into the church and showing the love of Christ. This is what, whatever you say, I will do. That's a high price. Whatever you say, I will do. So then, in verses 5 through 7, we, we read what David wants Jonathan to do. <laughs> yeah, just go to Dad uh, at the New Moon Festival thing, and uh, I'm not there, so just tell Dad that I, I'm not there because uh, my, my family wants me to come to a sacrifice at their place, and see how he reacts. And if he's uh, okay with that, if he's cool with that, then good. I'm, uh, we're, we're, I'm worried about nothing. But if he gets upset, then we know that he wants to kill me. And so David's intricate plot is revealed. And, and you know, the, the essence of the plot is kind of summed up in, a, in a, a proverb. That whatever spills out when we're bumped is really what's inside. So whatever spills out of Saul when David bumps him, or Jonathan bumps him with this absence of David, then we know what's really on the inside. And we, we see it there. And so from this selfless response, we, we see the, the, the strong devotion of David and Jonathan. In verse 8, Jonathan uh, is talking to David, and David in his vulnerable condition, he, he appealed to their mutual love. He appealed to that covenant that they had with each other, previously expressed as leverage for his request that Jonathan would show, now the, 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 ES, the NASB translates it, that you deal kindly with me. But it's the Hebrew word chesed, which is covenant loyalty. And it's a call for strong devotion and commitment. Because God is always committed to his people. He is never failing in his commitment to his people. And now David is saying, are you that way with me, Jonathan? And I'm fascinated. If you look at chapter, uh, look at verses 7 and 8. In 7. If he says it is good, this is David speaking to Jonathan. Notice, what does he say next? Your servant. Verse 8. Therefore deal kindly with your servant. And then later on, he says, uh, for you have brought your servant into a covenant relationship. Here is David, who is the anointed king of Israel, speaking to Jonathan in blatant humility and blatant uh, abdication of his responsibility. You know what? In chapter 18, David had, had received from Jonathan. John took off all of the visible markers that he was the king. 
gave him his sword, gave him his, all this stuff to demonstrate. And now David is in deference to Jonathan. It's an instructive way of approaching and manifesting humility, just as the Lord Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, his ancestor, David, the Lord's anointed, is modeling such humility. He is there. In the face of confusion, in the face of chaos, in the face of corruption, it's best to run to the one to whom we have entered into a covenant relationship. And for us, who know Christ as Savior, we run to Jesus. He is our rock. He's our refuge. He's our strength. An ever-present help in the time of need, as the psalmist says in Psalm 46, verse 1. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation to salvation, but in that salvation, what is he promising? Rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You, you can write this down. You don't have to turn to it now. But in Psalm 136, we'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. That's the constant refrain of Psalm 136. So my friend, in your confusion, in the chaos of your world, in the hardships that you face, David shows us where to, or Jonathan shows us where to go. We go to this relationship with the Lord and the Lord's anointed. We go to Jesus. We come to Him. And so we see Jonathan's several tender mercies he extends to David. In, in verse 9, he asserted David's innocence. Far be it from you to have ever done anything guilty worthy, uh, deserving of death. That, that, that's not possible. He assured, David's, uh, assured David of, of assistance. Hey, look, David, if I found out that uh, my dad was going to put you out, would I not tell you? This is his words. What, would I not tell you? But then David said, okay, you can say that. Talk is cheap, right? Proof is in the pudding. Talk is cheap. So prove it. Uh, that's verse 10 in my summary. Then David said to Jonathan, who's going to tell me if your dad's... Uh, upset with me. Well, then David says, okay, let's talk in private. That's my translation of verse 11. He says, let's go out into the field. Uh, let's have a little private conversation, a little private convo here. Uh, we're going to get out away from the crowd. And, uh, and then we see that that's really what happened uh, as we get down in verses 18 and following, which we will in a minute. So first of all, we find that, that covenant fundamentally removes insecurity. Secondly, in verses 12 through 23, the covenant forges unrivaled loyalty. Okay? Four covenant-based actions prove the allegiance that is like, wow, this is really crazy. This is a, a loyalty that is kind of unnatural. First of all, Jonathan's pledge to disclose Saul's intent. So David says, uh, what are you going to do? How are we going to know this? Well, uh, Jonathan says, I'm going to give you a promise. And he uses oath language, like a vow, to communicate his intent, uh, that he will reveal Saul's intent to David. And I found in the text that there are these three powerful indicators of his sincerity. How do we know that David is really not just blowing smoke here? Notice he says in verse 12, 
He says, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. I'm asking God Almighty to be a witness that I will actually reveal to you what my father has as his intention. There could be no greater witness. He's binding himself to declare whatever Saul reveals. Secondly, Jonathan's welfare. Notice what he said at the end. He says, Behold, if there is a good feeling towards David, shall I not uh, send it to you and make it known to you? Verse 13, If it please my father to do harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. What Jonathan is saying in, in that statement is that uh, he's acknowledging that uh, I will call down judgment, the same judgment that would come upon David. I want to come upon me if I find out daddy wants to kill you and I don't send you on your way and let you know. That's pretty powerful. I want it to come on me. If I refuse to disclose it to you. So you, you have the witness that he calls. You have his welfare that he puts at stake. And then thirdly, Jonathan's wish. May the Lord be with you, verse 13. And you look at that and you go, well, that's kind of nice, you know. I mean, we, we say that once in a while. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. But this is not a flippant, the Lord be with you. This is a, an implication. There is the... The hint that he understands that David will be the king. And that David will be the king and only the Lord's presence will enable David to rightly serve as the king of Israel. And he wants that for David. I want you to be the king and I want you to have God's presence. So what we have here, in my estimation, is that Jonathan's loyalty to his own political rival, you understand this, right? I mean, if Jonathan is like, Encouraging David to be the king. I mean, Jonathan is the king's son. So his encouragement and loyalty to the king's, uh, to his own political rival, was countercultural. But, I'm going to use this word covenant natural. In terms of the covenant, it made every bit of sense because they had this relationship in, in their covenant relationship. It was covenant natural. Seeking first God's kingdom. And not our own is the radical result of covenant relationship with the Lord's anointed. If you and I are in a relationship with the Lord's anointed, then we seek what is best for Him and His kingdom and not ourselves. That's the point. So our loyalty to the Lord trumps our approval by our peers, our approval by the public, our approval by present or potential employers, approval even by our parents. Our allegiance to the Lord's anointed is supreme. Uh, some of you have heard the, the, about this movie, The Sound of Freedom. Uh, Jim Caviezel is the, is the main actor in this movie, The Sound of Freedom. Well, when Jim Caviezel did The Passion of the Christ, when he uh, did that movie, he has uh, borne testimony to the fact that basically Hollywood outed him. I mean, he was just basically, uh, for the most part, cut off from acting and stuff. He did some other stuff. But this was the price he paid 
to do what he felt was right. Now, I'm not, I, I, I don't know Jim Caviezel personally. I'm just saying he's an example of someone who was willing to follow at the expense, at his own expense. And this is what Jonathan was willing to do. And then we see not only Jonathan's pledge, but Jonathan's personal risk. Verse 14, I read this text and I go, whoa. I want you to read verse 14. Now, you don't have to go, whoa, but I, I, I am. And, and if I'm still alive. Just think about that. I'll do whatever you want me to do. But now I want you to think about it. And if I'm still alive. What he's doing there is acknowledging the potentially lethal step that he's taking in following through with David's request. It could cost me my life. It's a riveting and revealing statement highlights the potential lethal cost of doing what David asked. And we know from what we read, it almost did cost him his life. Because his dad threw a spear at him, trying to kill him. That's a powerful statement. And then I stop and I say, okay, are we willing to pay that kind of price? To do whatever the Lord asks? Am I willing to lose my life or anything short of that? A few years ago, we had a... Uh, in the, previous church that we served at, we had a mission team that went to North Africa. A couple of young gals, college-age gals were on the team and some other folks from another guy from our church. And uh, while they were there, they had just landed and they had to evacuate because there was a huge alert of terrorist activity targeting Westerners. They weren't going to take kindly to it. We're talking in a country where uh, you know, it was not vogue to convert people to Christianity. You could use your, lose your life over it. They were willing to risk it. And so as those gals came back and we sat across the table from them kind of processing what had happened, you know, they came face to face with the reality that their life could be in danger. Because they were following Christ and what he asked them to do. And Jonathan says, if... I'm still alive. If I'm still alive. His personal risk. Then Jonathan procured a covenant promise from David. So Jonathan says, hey, look, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do it. What are, are you willing to fulfill your covenant loyalty to me in verse 14 or 15? And you shall, uh, uh, and, and you shall not cut off your, your loving kindness from my house forever. Uh, this is what he's asking uh, David to do. He's made his pledge in verses 12 to 13. Jonathan pledged to David. Now he's asking David, are you going to come through for me and protect my family and myself? Well, why would he ask him to do that? Because he knows David's going to be the king. And it just really was the, the pattern. If you became the king, you just took care of any opposition from the past. You just took them out. Because you don't want them rising up and causing problems. And so you took care of them. So David, uh, uh, Jonathan is asking David for his loyalty. You know, for seeing the day that when David, not David, but Jonathan would be the fugitive in need of help. You get that? Jonathan is not the fugitive right now, but he knows that he will be one day or his family will be. And so he gets this pledge and he received it. And he requested and received this pledge from David. It was a promise that was contrary to the culture. 
But we know from 2 Samuel chapter 9 that David followed through with it. And David protected Saul's or, or, or Jonathan's family. So covenant led to this countercultural loyalty. Our covenant with Christ, the new covenant that we're entered into, should lead to countercultural loyalty. It should lead spouses to stay married when the culture says, and when it's difficult, and when the culture says, ah, just forget it, don't worry about it. It should cause young people to stay faithful to Christ even when parents don't like it. It should cause us to speak the truth in love even when the world wants us to lie. And then we see Jonathan's plan. Uh, This is verses 18 and following. To disclose Saul's intent in in response to to David's question. So David's question is, who's going to tell me? And Jonathan says, "Uh, I am. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to go shoot some arrows. And uh, if I tell the the little boy, hey, over there, they're on the other side. Everything's cool. You can come back in. If I tell the little boy, oh, it's beyond you. Go, Go further, go further. Bad news. Get out of here. So that's the end of it. But notice how it ends in verse 23. Knowledge that the Lord is between you and me forever bound David and Jonathan in this covenant loyalty that, that was, was uncanny. It was un, uncultural. Third found, uh, fun, function of the covenant in verses 24 to 34. The covenant fuels devotion that may be costly. The scene unfolds, okay? Now we went, we're in the field, and now we're at the table, Saul's table, having the monthly uh, uh, new moon festival. And uh, the scene unfolds in three acts that expose what the costly choice of following the Lord's anointed may entail. It doesn't mean that it will entail this, but it may entail this, to follow the Lord's anointed. And when I say those words, that's Jonathan following the Lord's anointed David. That's those of us who know Jesus following the Lord's anointed Christ. This is the potential cost. We see, first of all, David's absence is explained in verses 24 through 29. David's absence at the monthly celebration wasn't even mentioned the first day. But it was highlighted the second day. And so Jonathan, and this is where it gets a little tricky here, uh, Jonathan parroted what David had told him to say. Uh, The boys want me to come down to Bethlehem to have a a sacrifice. And you're going, well, that's not really true, right? I mean, it's just a a ruse. Uh, And so all I can say, or all I'm going to say, I could say more, all I'm going to say is that what we have here is a statement of the message that David wanted him to communicate, not a sanctioning of the method. Okay, there's no sanctioning of the method. It's just a statement of fact, or a statement of what what David David wanted to. Uh, We can get into the ethics of whether it was okay for him to not tell the complete truth and all that kind of stuff later, uh, if you want to. If you want to look at that in another way, you can go to Exodus chapter uh, uh, 3, I think it is, where the midwives were actually basically lying to Pharaoh and saying, oh, you know, these these Hebrew kids, they just come out. Boom, they're just popping right out of there. We don't have any time to off them when they come out, so we just can't take care of them. And then the text says, God blessed them. Another topic. Okay, so... uh, David's absence is explained, okay? And how did Saul react? Saul's triggered. I mean, he is hot, right? 
And so B, Saul's anger is expressed in verse 30. And he says to his son, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. It's got to be her fault. You know, it's an endemic problem. Blame the woman for the problems. And so he, he blames her. But notice what else it says in verse 30, which I see as the fuel for Saul's fury is captured in this statement. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? You are shaming yourself and your family. Do I not know that you are choosing a choice to follow the Lord's anointed? And folks, this is the challenge for every one of us who knows the Word of God, who hears the Word of God. Are we going to follow the Lord's anointed? It is a choice. But it's a costly one. Jonathan, in this text, in this section, he, he places God's servant, David, the Lord's anointed. He places God's Word because I mean, God had already said in chapter 13, verse 14, in chapter 15, verse 28, that Saul's lineage was done. I mean, he wasn't going to have perpetual lineage. And that he was going to raise up somebody else, and this somebody else was David. So he's placing God's servant, uh, David, he's placing God's word, and he's placing God's kingdom first. A little lesson there for us. We place God's word or God's servant, Jesus, will we place God's word, will we replace God's kingdom first in our life? Now verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, this is an explanation of what, how, how it is, is he's shaming everybody. As long as he lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. The personally detrimental choice to preserve the son of Jesse. And I, you, know, you got to appreciate the way Saul refers to David with this deprecating title, the son of Jesse. He doesn't even use his name. The son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. Although Jonathan uses his name, David, David, David. Uh, just the son of Jesse. This personally detrimental choice to preserve the son of David prevented Jonathan's coronation, at least in Saul's eyes. And it brought humiliation on himself and on his, on his family. Several years ago when I was in Haiti, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's still true, but culturally, uh, pastors are kind of held in high esteem, you know. And they, they dress really nice and they are kind of venerated among the, the population and the people. It would have been thought absolute humiliation for a pastor to be digging a ditch next to a farmer, an irrigation ditch, ditch next to a farmer. It would be that would be totally humiliating. Saul is saying, you are humiliating yourself and your family by this. So what did Saul do? He tempted him. He tempted him to pursue Saul and Jonathan's self-interest by eliminating David. All you got to do is get rid of this guy and you're next in line to the throne. What's your problem? Bring him to me for he must die. I, I love Jonathan's gutsy and godly response. And he does it, he, he responds with, with questions. These uh, 
rhetorical questions. Two of them. Look at verse 32. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and he said to him, uh, why should he be put to death? I mean, what has he done? Give me some evidence. And with those two questions, he, he, makes, uh, he, does, he takes three important steps. First of all, he discredited Saul's intention. You have no justification for what you're doing. He discredited it. And secondly, he disregarded his own position. It doesn't matter if I'm king. And, and finally, what he did is he declared his devotion to David. I'm not really into you, Dad. Uh, I'm into David now. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm taking him. And so then we see in verse 33, Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew. Well, that wasn't a very, you know, he didn't have to take too many brains to figure that out. Uh, I guess Dad doesn't like me. He doesn't like David. I, I, I guess he's going to try to put him to death. And I, I think about this. Folks, you see the irony here? There is righteous Jonathan, there is righteous David, and there is wicked Saul. And in the face of righteousness, how does wickedness manifest itself? It's hostile towards what's righteous. It's hostile towards what is right. Saul epitomizes evil, which condemns virtue. And clamors for and celebrates vice. This is the world we live in, folks. Condemning virtue. And celebrating and clamoring for vice. Uh, I think Isaiah 5, uh, 5.20 is, the, is the, the, the descriptor verse for the culture in which we live. And in that verse, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Darkness light and light darkness. That's the world we live in. Why are people upset that the governor of Iowa is calling the state legislature back together to enact a bill to preserve unborn life? Why is that a problem? To oppose the protection of unborn children is evil. Jonathan paid a price for his loyalty to David, to the Lord's anointed. The degradation and rejection of his father. The humiliation from his culture and the abdication of his throne. And I ask you today, and I ask myself, what price am I willing to pay to follow the Lord's anointed? There's a story I haven't verified the, the veracity of it. I heard another pastor share this story. I tried to look it up. I couldn't find any information on it. But the story is of, of a young gal named Miriam whose father was a rabbi in North Park, Chicago, or Highland Park in Chicago. Okay, This is a, a very affluent uh, Jewish neighborhood in Chicago. The Lord got a hold of her life and she became a believer. And her father, being a rabbi, called in the most important influential rabbis from Jerusalem to dissuade her to no avail. 
And every year in their home, they had this prestigious celebration where all of the important religious leaders were called in and they had this, this, this time of socializing and gathering. And every year, Miriam was asked to play the piano because she was rather accomplished. And on this particular occasion, Miriam sat down at the piano. If all eyes riveted on her, she began to play and she began to sing, Jesus I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow you. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow you. And when she finished singing, she got up and she walked out of her home never to return because she knew the shame and she knew the rejection was there. I ask, why? Why would we pay such a price to follow Christ? What is the purpose? What is the point? Why is it? Why is it that we would seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Even if it's costly. Well, believers, we can rest in the covenant, the new covenant. Promise that through faith in Jesus, we have been pardoned of all of our sins for all eternity. We will are, are, are those who are, have a purpose in this life to glorify God and, and to do good works for Him that it transcends this world. We enjoy His presence. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And finally, we gain an eternal grand prize that is better than anything we would ever gain in this life. An inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus says, anyone who has to give up their, their, their brothers or their sisters or their fathers or their mothers or lands or farms, they'll receive many more and in the end, eternal life. So it seems costly now, but the benefit is ours. It is Jim Elliot's famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Believers, we are not here to establish our kingdom. We are here to advance His kingdom and to live for Him each and every day of our life. Then we see Jonathan's anger. Amazingly, the, like it just kind of slaps you upside the head, but Jonathan's response was anger. And you get that. I mean, if your dad tried to spear you, you'd be ticked off. And rightly so. But notice in verse 34 that his anger is not directed towards his dad's animosity to him, but to his dad's offense to the Lord's anointed. He's not upset that he's mad at him. He's upset that he has dishonored God's chosen king. And I think, wow, am I upset when believers are spurned and demeaned and, and made fun of and criticized because that's an offense to me or offense to us? Or am I more offended that it is a dishonoring of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, the moral revolution that we're experiencing in this society is an affront first and foremost to Almighty God. And we should be most offended that the King of Kings 
is being mocked and ridiculed and scorned and demeaned. The moral revolution is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, an affront to God's design for the family. There's one final found, uh, fun function of this covenant, and that is it fosters peace and uncertainty. Verses 35 through 42, I'm not going to read it. I didn't read it. You can read it on your own, but basically it's just the, it's the acting out of what happened. Uh, Jonathan went out, shot the arrows, told the little boy, go on further beyond because uh, David's life is in trouble. So David and Jonathan uh, came together as Jonathan sent the little boy with the arrows and stuff back to, to the city, and they had this little con. Con- convention out there in the field, and in this convention, it, their departure was both painful and peaceful. It was painful. It says David, and they wept, and they wept, and they wept, and David more, because they were, they loved each other, and they were saying goodbye. They were saying goodbye. And in that text, David bowed down three times in gratitude to Jonathan, because he realized the sacrifice Jonathan had made to discern this information. But it was also peaceful. Notice verse 42, it says, go in safety. Go in safety. It was peaceful because they were comforted in the fact that they were in covenant love relationship with each other. They had this covenant commitment to each other that would not be broken. David was comforted by the fact that Jonathan would not undermine and circumvent him. David was, Jonathan was comforted in the fact that David, once he became king, he would not out and off and kill his family and, his, and himself. They were united. Even though they were separated, they had strength. And father, brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, we can calmly face uncertainty because we are at peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 21. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are at peace with God. God is no longer after us. God will no longer crush us. God will no longer expel His wrath upon us. We can also be comforted by the fact that we are forever forgiven and redeemed. And we are also enjoying the peace of God. The peace of God that passes all understanding. And we also have the promise of the presence of of God in all that we go through so that peace believers we don't have peace because all is peaceful we have peace because we are friends with the prince of peace who through the new covenant sealed and secured our pardon his peace his presence through his blood that's why we how we can say God is so, so good, even when life is not so, so good, because God is good. If you're listening to this this morning and you have never put your faith, you trust in Christ, you're kind of thinking maybe, oh, Jonathan was pretty stupid, I think, because he just sold himself out. He just gave away his inheritance, and that wasn't such a smart move. Well, from a worldly standpoint, no. But uh, Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 8 verse, nine, verse, or 8, verse 36, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Uh, yeah, Jonathan was more into his soul than he was into the cash and into the power. And that would be my challenge to you. Because God in Christ has loved us enough 
that he sent his son to sacrifice his son so that all who believe can enter his kingdom. Not like Jonathan or David or Saul who wanted to sacrifice his son because he wanted to have more power in his kingdom. No, God sent his son to die and sacrifice so that we could enter into his kingdom. And I would invite you to enter that kingdom because in that kingdom there is a promise of pardon forever. There is promise of peace with God. There is promise of peace of God. There is a promise of purpose in God. There is a promise of the presence of God. There is a promise of the prize with God forever far outweighs anything that we would ever gain in this world. Believers, our friendship with Jesus, who gave his life for us, provides us comfort and confidence in chaos so that we can say that we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And as we take the elements of communion, what we do is we remind ourselves of the price that Jesus paid to secure our friendship with him. A friendship that provides us this comfort, that provides us this confidence because it gives us the pardon, the peace, the presence, the purpose, and the prize. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to take a few moments and to search your heart and to confess your sin before God, get your heart right before God. And then I invite you and encourage you to come and take these elements which are a reminder of the joy of what God has done. Contemplate the price and celebrate the result. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the function of the covenant, the Lord, that removes insecurity from our, from our lives, that uh, forges that, that, that loyalty that fuels us to, to follow and have devotion even though it's costly and that provides us with peace for eternity and uncertainty. I ask now that you would uh, drive these truths home to us. If there's anyone who wants to put their faith or their trust in Christ, I pray that they would surrender and admit their own sin, that it separates them from God, that they deserve your judgment, and that they would turn from it and confess it and claim your death and resurrection as the proof of your love for them and the promise that they have of gaining eternal life, that they put their faith or their trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name.